Chairing the Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. The Nuclear Security Summit uh, was first envisioned by President Obama in 2009 as an international effort to, in his words, secure all vulnerable nuclear material around the world within four years. According to official data from the summit, commitments made by participating countries have resulted in removal and or dis disposition of over 3.2 metric tons of vulnerable, highly enriched uranium or HEU and plutonium material. Complete elimination of HEU from 12 countries, verified shutdown or successful conversion to low enriched uh, uranium, LEU, fuel use of 24 research reactors and isotope production facilities in 15 countries, completion of physical security upgrades at 32 buildings, um, buildings storing weapons, usable fissile materials, installation of radiation detection equipment at 200. 328 international boarding crossings, airports, and seaports to combat illicit trafficking in nuclear materials, and the establishment of an international nuclear fuel bank as a buffer against shortages in the commercial market that might otherwise lead more countries to decide to produce their own nuclear fuel. A lot of accomplishments there. And uh, while we welcome those, I fear that they're being overshadowed by the actions of nuclear weapons states, accommodations of rogue regimes, and a general weakening of the non-proliferation standards and enforcement. Today, many argue that the threat of nuclear conflict is greater than ever. Pakistan and India are enlarging and improving their nuclear arsenals in an attempt to gain an upper hand over one another. Meanwhile, there has been virtually no progress made to address nuclear security with India. Russia remains in violation of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces INF Treaty while aggressively exercising its nuclear forces. The Russians have also broken the 1994 promises of territorial integrity they made to Ukraine in connection with that country's relinquishment of nuclear weapons and have ended cooperative threat reduction work with the United States. Further, we could point to many recent instances of sensitive nuclear material being found outside of Russian government control. North Korea continues to flaunt its nuclear capabilities, developed first in violation of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, and then following withdrawal from that treaty without fear of reprisal from the international community. No action was taken against them when they pulled away from it. And Iran continues to parade the arrangement they received with the JCPOA by testing ballistic missiles and setting the stage to capitalize on the massive industrialization of its nuclear complex authorized by the international community. Efforts to halt the proliferation of technologies that can feed nuclear weapons programs are also being undermined. At a time when global plutonium stocks are rising with enough material to build at least 20,000 nuclear weapons, recent 1-2-3 agreements have given free passes to pursue reprocessing. We've talked to Tom about that numbers of times. I'm also concerned that the administration is missing the opportunity to call for plutonium for a plutonium timeout in Asia by prohibiting the reprocessing of U.S. origin material by South Korea and China, while calling for Japan to further delay the restart of, repro of the reprocessing facility at Rokasho. 
And rather than leveraging the pressure of the international community to secure a deal with Iran that ends the enrichment of uranium, the P5 plus one nations have all but built the critical infrastructure that allows them to produce the material for which they have no verifiable requirement. In light of these developments, it's appropriate that we take a closer look today at the President's call nearly seven years ago to secure all vulnerable nuclear material around the world within four years. It's worth a quick look at the remainder of the Prague agenda as well. While President Obama committed to aggressively pursue U.S. ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, I thank his administration for recognizing that pushing the Senate to provide its advice and Senate this time would be futile. Even if we were to ratify it, moreover, it would never enter into force because that would also require ratification by countries such as North Korea, Iran, China, India, and Pakistan. Undersecretary Gottmuller invested significant personal attention to negotiate a fissile material cutoff treaty, but Pakistan has refused to consent to open negotiations. Though President Obama in his Prague speech stated that rules must be binding, Violations must be punished. Words must mean something. I'm concerned that the track record has not always matched with the rhetoric, particularly with respect to Russia, North Korea, and Iran. The Iran deal has demonstrated that noncompliance can be rewarding. It really has. Further, even though the UN Security Council recently passed a resolution to apply new sanctions in the wake of missile and nuclear tests, there remains no consequence for North Korea abandoning the nonproliferation treaty and the international community has shied away from applying real consequences to affect the nuclear calcul calculations of the Kim regime. I want to thank our witnesses today for joining us and helping us examine these important issues. I look forward to your testimony. and. Uh, with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, my friend, Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, thank you for uh, conducting this hearing. It's an extremely important hearing in regards to our nuclear agenda. The timing couldn't be more appropriate. Uh, two weeks before the fourth uh, nuclear security summit, uh, the first occurring in the United States in 2010, then in Seoul in 2012, and the Hague in 2014, now back to Washington in 2016. 52 countries will be here to review their nuclear safeguards, as well as four of the relevant international organizations. The goal clearly is to enhance global nuclear security, mitigate the threat posed by nuclear terrorism. Uh, I, I agree with much of what the chairman has said in his, in his opening remarks. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, we have seen U.S. leadership, bipartisan leadership, to deal with the growing threat of nuclear proliferation and the fear that nuclear weapons could end up in the hands of rogue states or terrorist organizations. The Nunn-Luger Act in 1991 is a prime example of Democrats and Republicans working together uh, to make uh, the world safer and the security of the United States uh, stronger. The record of the Obama administration in these uh, nuclear uh, security summits, uh, the chairman mentioned some, and, uh, and I think it's impressive. The removal or destruction of 3.2 metric tons of vulnerable, highly enriched uranium or plutonium, that's a significant reduction. That was certainly good news. 
28 countries in Taiwan are now uh, high enriched uranium free. That is certainly good news. And this committee has looked at what we call the, the gold standard of trying to get less countries, not more, involved in having these types of materials or the capacity to enrich. There have been upgrades in 32 buildings storing weapons uh, usable for fissile materials. That's also a, a major accomplishment that we've been able uh, to do as a result of U.S. global leadership on this issue. And, and I applaud uh, our, our first panel of witnesses for the roles that both played, have played in these sum, summits. So I, I, I thank both Secretary Countryman and Secretary Guttmiller uh, for their service to our country and the results of, a, of being able to move forward, uh, particularly with uh, some of our partners who otherwise, I think, would not have moved as aggressively as they have on nuclear safety issues. But we have significant challenges. Uh, North Korea, they are, they, they, their desire to proliferate, uh, they, we've seen their fingerprints in other parts than just North Korea, and th th what they're doing today to, to perfect their nuclear capacity is uh, very alarming, uh, knowing that this is not a stable regime from the point of view of how they may use uh, this capacity. So um, that's a major concern. It is very noticeable that when we meet in two weeks, uh, Russia will not be there. They made that decision two years ago that they would not be participating in our nuclear security summit. I would uh, uh, like to find out from our witnesses uh, how we intend to continue to work with Russia. I agree with Chairman Corker. Russia has been less than effective in dealing with its nuclear program and the U.S. involvement with Russia tends to bring about better results for nuclear safety. So without their presence here, uh, how do we anticipate moving forward uh, with, uh, with Russia in their nuclear uh, activities? Uh, I am very troubled by countries that we have strategic partnerships with, but yet it seems to me that we are not able to have them follow international protocols on nuclear safety uh, as it relates to the, the treaty that Senator Corker was referring to and other types of activities. Uh, they seem to be more concerned about some of their border security issues than they are about global issues, which is bringing about uh, challenges. Uh, and we're not sure that is not being used just as an excuse to advance some of their nuclear programs all being very provocative uh, to what is happening in sensitive regions of the world. So I'd be interested as to how we are going to continue to work with countries that we have strategic partnerships with to get more aggressive action to prevent proliferation of nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, the, 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 there's also, of course, the, the, the area I have great concern about is uh, what's going to happen uh, as far as um, uh, the fear of terrorism and making sure the terrorists do not get access to, to nuclear capacities. There's a greater need today than ever for all of us to work together, bipartisan, uh, to provide U.S. leadership to reduce the threat of destructive materials, whether they be radiological, biological, or chemical, falling into the wrong hands. And I look forward to our first panel and our second panel, where uh, I will have the opportunity of questioning one of my former colleagues, Ellen Toucher. It's a pleasure to see you here. It's also nice to have uh, Mr. Toby with us today. So I look forward to both panels. 
Well, thank you, Senator Cardin. We'll now turn to our distinguished witnesses. Our first witness is the Honorable Rose Gottmuller. She currently serves as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Been before our committee several times. We thank her for being here again today. Our second witness is the Honorable Thomas M. Countryman. He ser currently serves as Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation again before us many times. I think both of you, both of you understand that without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. If you could summarize in about five minutes or so, we'd appreciate it. And again, we thank you for your service to our country and for being here today. And Rose, why don't you begin? Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And uh, it's a pleasure to appear before you and before uh, Senator Cardin and the other members of the committee. It's always a great honor for me to come before this committee. As a first order of business, Mr. Chairman, I just wanted to wish the committee a very happy St. Patrick's Day. You may think with my last name that I don't have a drop of Irish blood in me, but my mother was a redhead from Sydney of Irish yeah. descent, so I'm half Very Irish, good. actually. Well, thank you. Happy St. Patrick's Day. All three of y'all are appropriately dressed. I am not, but we welcome you. Thank you for saying thank you. that. Thank you. Um, I'm very happy to update you on this administration's nuclear nonproliferation efforts and the role of the Nuclear Security Summit process in preventing nuclear terrorism. These are critically important issues uh, for our nation and for the world, and so I thank you very much for your interest. This administration came into office with nuclear nonproliferation as a critical component of our foreign policy. In 2009, President Obama called for a series of concrete steps to help protect our country and the world from nuclear dangers. We have taken steps to verifiably reduce the number of nuclear weapons that are deployed against us as we continue to maintain a safe, secure, and effective arsenal for as long as nuclear weapons exist. I'm glad to tell you that the New START Treaty, with the bipartisan support of this body, is providing predictability about the Russian nuclear arsenal at a time of continuing crisis and a very poor relationship with Moscow. The treaty is thus manifestly in the interest of U.S. national security. In this hearing, however, Mr. Chairman, I will not further focus on arms reductions, but on the steps we have taken to protect against the further spread of nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear terrorism. The prospects of nuclear terrorism present a very different challenge from proliferation by other countries. Terrorists do not make commitments other than to destruction and the black markets and smuggling networks that could link them with nuclear materials are not bound by recognized rules, norms, or by borders. Given the destruction that terrorists could unleash with only one weapon, nuclear terrorism is the greatest threat to our national security. In order to marshal unprecedented attention and efforts to address this threat, the administration initiated the Nuclear Security Summit process in 2010, bringing together leaders from 50-plus countries and four international organizations. As you both have already noted, the fourth and final of those summits will be held here in Washington March 31st and April 1st in two weeks' time. The summit process, though, hasn't just been one of gathering leaders to meet every two years. Its achievements are measured by the practical follow-through of tangible and real-world actions, making vulnerable nuclear materials secure kilogram by kilogram, fence by fence, and guard by guard. And again, I, I'm grateful to you both for noting some of, the, uh, some of the accomplishments so far. 
Uh, Assistant Secretary Countryman will outline in greater detail that we have expanded our ability to help international partners prevent, detect, and respond to trafficking in nuclear and radioactive material. Summit participants will commit to maintaining the momentum of the summit process after 2016, including through implementing action plans for five key international organizations, the UN, the IAEA, Interpol, Global Partnership, and the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism. So the process will continue. I want to thank the committee and its leaders for your attention and interest in these matters and your dedication and commitment to enhancing American national security. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Mr. Countryman. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity. I always appreciate it. The Nuclear Security Summit that will occur at the end of this month is, as you noted, a crucial element of the strategy to keep terrorists from acquiring fissile material to make nuclear weapons, but is only one part of our much broader strategy in nonproliferation. The summit that you will see at the end of this month is not just about declarations, but about real-world results, many of which you and Senator Cardin have already listed. It's not just the elimination of highly enriched uranium and plutonium stocks from many countries. It means a genuine improvement <clears throat> in the physical security and, just as importantly, the attention to security procedures in every country that has significant stocks of fissile material, including some of the countries that you've mentioned, in India, in Pakistan, in China, and in Russia, as well as other countries, a strong improvement in the actual security of nuclear materials. With regard to Russia, we, of course, regret its decision not to participate. But again, the nuclear security situation has improved the most important improvement, of course, occurring under the Nunn-Lugar program well before the Nuclear Security Summit began. But Russia also remains an important partner in a number of areas, and I would highlight that Russia and the United States continue to cooperate in the chairmanship of the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism, an association that brings together more than 90 countries for very practical steps to combat nuclear terrorism. The uh, summit will, of course, at its conclusion, hand over the important work accomplished over the last six years to five additional entities in five separate action plans so that the work of the summit will be taken up by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the United Nations, and its 1540 committee, Interpol, the Global Partnership Against WMD, and the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism. This is specific to the summit. You've mentioned, and we look forward to questions about other areas of nuclear nonproliferation. Let me note here that, of course, the priority for my bureau this year is in continuing to support implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action in my view, this is the most important nonproliferation success of the last decade. It is healing a wound in the nonproliferation treaty regime, and its successful implementation will mean that we have fewer concerns about additional proliferation around the world. 
In addition, we're working hard in order to ensure that both the recent congressional legislation and the new Security Council resolution concerning North Korea are strongly enforced, not only by the United States, but by bringing all of our diplomatic strength to bear to get other nations to enforce it just as strongly. I share your concerns about the fact that reprocessing of spent fuel into plutonium raises considerations of non-proliferation, of safety, and of security, and I can describe further our discussions of that with friends in Asia. Finally, I would note that continued leadership, as the United States has demonstrated from one administration to the next in non-proliferation and disarmament, is built upon keeping our own commitments and obligations. And in this regard, I very much welcome the fact that Congress last year passed the implementing legislation that enabled us to ratify the amended Convention on Physical Protection of Nuclear Materials. With our ratification, we've been able to get other states to do the same. We are now just 10 states away from ratification of this most important international convention, and I look forward to it coming into force this year. I would hope at the same time that we can work together in order to take action on other priorities and commitments, such as making a long-term commitment to providing the International Atomic Energy Agency the expanded resources it needs for its mission, at the same time confirming an outstanding nominee to represent us at the International Atomic Energy Agency, that is Laura Holgate, and ratifying in the Senate this year what should be very non-controversial protocols related to the establishment of nuclear-free zones. We are, of course, ready to work with you on all of these issues and look forward to your questions today. Well, thank you, and thank you both again for being here. Uh, let me ask this question. So we had this uh, speech, if you will, in 2009. We have the summit that's upcoming. What is it globally that's driving the fact that we actually have greater threat of nuclear conflict today than we did then in spite of these uh, sort of incremental um, uh, accomplishments that have occurred that we all acknowledge, but we still have a greater threat today than we had then of a nuclear conflict. Uh, what is it that's, that's driving uh, just the opposite uh, of what we had hoped would occur uh, through these uh, efforts that you are taking place? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'll make two points in this regard. First of all, I do think uh, that the President's Prague Initiative, at its core, was focused on the threat of nuclear weapons falling into the hands of terrorists. And through such mechanisms as uh, the nuclear security summits and all the work we've done on global uh, threat reduction, it has really w raised awareness uh, enormously among countries around the world uh, that we really have to do everything we can to physically protect nuclear materials, fissile material, weapons, keep them out of the hands of terrorists. So I actually think that we have uh, a good record, and, and you'll be hearing more about it as uh, the run-up to the summit continues, in terms of uh, getting our arms around this threat. It's a terribly uh, unpredictable threat, however, the threat of nuclear weapons in the hands of terrorists. Yeah. So we can never sleep. We have to keep at it day in and day out. So that's one point I'd like to make. I will grant you, sir, that we are very concerned, particularly about nuclear arms racing in Asia. Uh, 
Yeah. That is one reason, sir, and I was took careful note of your comment about the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, bringing it up uh, for consideration in this body and, and uh, ratification would be futile at this time. I do think uh, that that is a correct statement because we need to take time and we need to make an effort to really look at uh, the national security value of this treaty. In my view, one of its uh, great values is that it places a barrier in the way of this arms race in Asia that is creating more nuclear weapons capacity in countries in Asia, much more than we saw a decade ago. So this is a problem. So today we have, and I appreciate the efforts you're talking about around materials not getting to, into terrorist hands, but we find ourselves in a worse place, greater threat, uh, over nuclear conflict than we were at that time. Um, and I, I appreciate you bringing up Asia. This is an issue we've had with Mr. Countryman, and again, we thank him for his service, and we have policy disagreements. I do not understand why, knowing that there's been this race that's taking place in Asia, that we have one, two, three agreements that are not uh, dealing with the reprocessing issue. It's encouraging that. We're not calling for a, a plutonium timeout like we could have done, especially at a time when Tokyo was willing to uh, put off the, the Rokasho uh, reactor from being, uh, you know, starting up again. So I, I don't understand why the administration is putting in place policies that actually encourage, encourage the reprocessing of plutonium when we know that this is the area where proliferation is occurring. I don't know if you want to address that, uh, both of you, but it's counter to what's in our national interest. <clears throat> I frankly don't agree that we have a policy that encourages production of plutonium. Uh, the United States, as the Department of Energy can explain far better than I, is fully aware of the high economic costs of reprocessing, of turning plutonium into mixed oxide fuel, and those economics are the same in every country on Earth. It is a policy that has little, if any, economic justification, and as I said, raises concerns about nuclear security and non-proliferation. The United States does not assist, does not encourage this, has not done so in either the China or the ROK one, two, three agreements. I would be very happy to see all countries get out of the plutonium reprocessing business. But we enter into one, two, three agreements that allow it. In the case of China, which has already long established uh, <coughs> a reprocessing capability, there is no one, two, three agreement we could have written that would have changed their policy one inch. What about in, in South Korea? In the case of South Korea, we wrote a one, two, three agreement that agrees to defer any decision about South Korea using U.S. technology for reprocessing to a date well in the future and leaves that decision in the hands of the Secretary of Energy. And we all know why we did it. Well, there are multiple we reasons. we kowtowed to political pressures. I strongly disagree. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I disagree with that. And why didn't we address it on the front end? Why didn't we address it on the front end if we weren't doing that? Mm -hmm. Because we didn't want to take a hard line against plutonium reprocessing. That's, a, that's exactly right. What about the INF Treaty? Um, you know, Russia has been in violation now for two years. That was controversial because it came up during the time of the New START Treaty. I supported the New START Treaty. I think it was the right thing to do, and as long as we invest in modernization like we 
should, uh, it'll end up being a good thing for our country. But where are we right now, uh, Ms. Scott Muller, on, on the INF violations that still, uh, Russia, as I understand it, still has not come into compliance? First of all, Mr. Chairman, uh, I really want to underscore a point that I've made several times uh, to you and to uh, other colleagues up here on Capitol Hill. That is, uh, prior to the ratification in December 2010 of the New START Treaty, the intelligence community, our intelligence community, was not aware of any Russian activity inconsistent with the INF Treaty. So this has been an issue that has arisen since uh, New START tr Treaty was ratified and entered into force. I have to say, uh, in my diplomatic career, it has been uh, one of the most difficult issues that I have ever dealt with. It has been extraordinarily difficult uh, because uh, the Russians simply have not wanted to engage uh, in a way that would, uh, would resolve this problem, and we are uh, committed to bringing them back into compliance with the INF Treaty and uh, essentially recommitting to that treaty for the future. Again, because we believe it's in our national security interests and the interests of our allies. Our allies, both in Europe and Asia, have a very, very strong interest in this matter. I will say that we have been engaged in steady diplomacy. I see some uh, progress in Russia's willingness at the highest level to recommit to the treaty now, and we are uh, looking forward to moving expeditiously in 2016 to try to make some progress on this uh, difficult matter. But I, I cannot uh, duck the fact that it has been a very difficult negotiation. And, and what, what has made it so difficult there? clearly in violation. What is there to negotiate? Well, they argue that they, in fact, are in full compliance with the INF Treaty, and instead uh, they have thrust three allegations our way. So it's, uh, yeah. I would say, quite typical Soviets-style uh, negotiating tactics. Yeah. That is, the best defense is a good offense. I have had a good relationship with you, and I appreciate, um, you know, the many, many conversations we've had and certainly the meetings we've had down in the SCIF, and I'll just make an observation. I know you've been nominated to a position that doesn't require Senate approval with NATO. I, I do think there uh, is widespread concern um, about sometimes many people feeling like you're an apologist for Russia at a time when NATO really needs to push back against Russia. And I would just encourage you somehow to figure out a way to change that opinion. I realize that you're not going to be confirmed by the Senate. It's not one of those kind of positions. But especially as it's related to this INF issue, um, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I think you already know that. Um, but people are very concerned that you really have not been the kind of person who has pushed back heavily against Russia and been more of an apologist because of your many interactions. I don't know if you want to respond to that or just acknowledge that that's something that needs to be addressed. Perhaps, Mr. Chairman, I'll just make two points. Uh, it's inevitable, uh, I think, because of my uh, longstanding background uh, working uh, with uh, the Soviet Union first and the Russian Federation uh, I have uh, spent time working as the director of the Carnegie Moscow Center, so spent time working in Moscow and uh, with Russians. I have respected Russian colleagues. Uh, I uh, do feel that pragmatic problem solving 
in uh, the diplomatic realm is important, and that's whether we're talking about the Russians, whether we're talking about the Pakistanis, whether we're talking about the Chinese or the, or, uh, the Zimbabweans. Uh, pragmatic problem solving is my approach to how we actually move the ball forward. So I do not apologize for that kind of pragmatism in uh, the service of our country, and I only undertake measures that are in the interests and in the service of my country with the full accord of our interagency community. So that's one point I'd like to make. The other point I'd like to make, sir, is I think uh, all those who are concerned in this matter should not take my word for it. Of course, I would defend myself. But I think asking uh, people like Assistant Secretary Victoria Newland, who was up here yesterday, has quite a tough, a tough reputation in this regard. Uh, people like uh, Dan Freed, who is our sanctions uh, negotiator, quite tough uh, reputation in this regard, and people like General Breedlove, I think it would be worth uh, perhaps them making some inquiries of folks like that, what they think about me. Thank you very much, um, Senator Udall. Okay. <clears throat> thank you very much, Chairman Corker, and thank you both for coming before the committee again. President uh, Obama has expressed his support for the ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and many arms control uh, uh, export, experts believe that the past opposition to this treaty is no longer valid, and I, I agree with that. In the past, some believed that live testing might be necessary to ensure the reliability of the U.S. stockpile. Some also were skeptical that the treaty could not be enforced because rogue nations might test weapons clandestinely and do that underground. My understanding is that the arms control expert consensus is that those concerns are no longer valid, and I would like to seek your uh, judgment on these matters. First, the national labs using uh, science-based models have developed the life extension programs to maintain our stockpile. Much of this work occurs in New Mexico at the two national labs there, Sandia and Los Alamos. Uh, we have some of the best scientists in the world at our national labs. Yesterday, the administrator of the National Nuclear Administration, General Klotz, uh, said he's confident in our deterrent and that the life extensions program's ability to maintain the stockpile without testing. And the national, I believe all of the national lab directors uh, concur with this assessment. Do you both share the confidence in science-based life extension programs and the technology means uh, and that the technology means that live testing of nuclear weapons is not needed for our national security? Yes, Senator. Yes. 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 Do you want to expand on that at all, or shall I fire away with another question here? Well, I will just uh, comment quickly that uh, at the time uh, this body last uh, reviewed uh, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty in 1999 for ratification and failed to give its advice and consent, at that point, uh, stockpile stewardship, science-based stockpile stewardship, was, was a newborn baby and had not yet uh, been developed. And in the ensuing decade and a half, it has made enormous strides, and just as as uh, Administrator Klotz noted yesterday, it is providing high confidence now that we can sustain and maintain our nuclear arsenal without explosive nuclear testing. So we are at a much different place with science-based stockpile stewardship, and it's, it's uh, well worth a relook at wow. its uh, capability. Great. The um, national labs have also developed cutting-edge, sophisticated 
sensors and monitoring devices, including satellite technology, to monitor the globe for a nuclear test and thus prevent the proliferation of nuclear materials. Given these capabilities, are you confident that we can detect a nuclear test using existing technology so that the, the treaty would be verifiable and, and enforceable? And can you briefly outline how this technology helped us understand the latest North Korean test? Yes, I, and I believe my colleague can join me in saying yes. Um, again, back in 1999, uh, the international monitoring system was but a gleam in the eye of those who uh, had put the treaty together, and uh, it, was not, uh, it was not yet deployed. The international monitoring system is an international system of uh, monitors, seismic, radiological, infrasound, all around the world, many, many countries uh, participating. And uh, our laboratories uh, participate in preparing the technology and helping uh, to, uh, to uh, put the technology in place at the various sites. Uh, the bottom line is that this system is already proving its worth. Within a very few hours, it had detected the nuclear explosion, the latest test in North Korea and had provided the first assessment to the international community. The great value of this system is that it is in the service of the entire international community as well as uh, the CTBTO and uh, the CTBT uh, system. So that's, that's one point I'd really like to underscore, but you're quite right, Senator, that the labs are also constantly working on upgrading and improving our own national technical means. So we do not have to depend on the IMS. We have, in addition, an entire layer of uh, monitoring capability uh, in uh, constantly refreshed by technological developments that are, uh, that are implemented by our national laboratories. Yeah. Secretary uh, Countryman, do you have anything to add there? Uh, uh, no, sir. My boss is the expert here. <laughs> okay. Could, could you also comment? I mean, we, we have the Iran agreement that we've entered into, and I think a lot of the same things I talked about in terms of the, sens uh, the sensors, the monitoring, uh, have allowed us to have a confidence level, I believe, in that agreement that normally uh, if you go back 10 or 20 years, we wouldn't have had that kind of confidence level because we've built up the science and, and we've worked very, very hard to do that. Do you, do you, uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. I would just add that under the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, the ability of the International Atomic Energy Agency to uh, inspect and verify and monitor activities in Iran exceeds anything that has been done in Iran before and in fact exceeds the standard for virtually any other member of the NPT. It relies crucially upon more advanced technologies, many of them developed by the same national laboratories that you've described, uh, and it is one of the reasons why that kind of advanced technology needs to be applied more widely, not only in Iran, but by the IAEA and other countries. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you very much. And I, and I would just note, uh, we were honored to have a visit from uh, Chairman Corker several years back to the National Laboratories, and we had an extensive uh, couple of days where we explored all of these issues and were able to have a very good exchange, and we were really honored to have him. Well, it's amazing what's happening there, and uh, I know Rose and Tom will attest to this, but, uh, you know, one of the things that makes the thesis behind the New START Treaty 
be achieved is we've got to invest heavily in the facilities and do those things that we're supposed to be doing on modernization. I think everyone understands Russia has the best and brightest scientists in their country working on their nuclear program. Uh, where we're refitting and, you know, grinding out and making sure old warheads work well, they're developing new ones, and I think uh, people understand that. So I hope that we'll invest a lot more in the activities that are taking place there, and thank you for being such a great host, Senator Flake. Well, thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Sorry I arrived late, and hopefully you're not plowing old ground here. But uh, in 2009, President Obama said that he wanted to, within four years, secure all vulnerable nuclear material. It's now about seven years. Uh, just give an assessment of where we are right now, either of you. Perhaps, uh, Senator, I'll just say a few words and, and then turn the floor over to Assistant Secretary Countryman. I went, really wanted to emphasize that we've done an enormous amount to uh, basically get uh, fissile material under better control and to minimize its use. Uh, 12 countries plus Taiwan have given up their highly enriched uranium over the past uh, years as we've been working on this problem. So we have made significant strides, but there's more work to be done. Tom? Uh, right, that's the answer. There are fewer countries where fissile material, that is highly enriched uranium or plutonium, exist. Those countries where there are significant uh, amounts of such material, have enhanced their physical security and, enhanced, and have enhanced their procedural security. In addition, we now have more than 20 nuclear security centers of excellence around the world in which countries can train their people on how to sustain those highest levels of security. So I think this progress, as well as a dozen other things I could mention, have substantially met the goal of focusing the intention of the entire world on this issue. Thank you. How would you assess uh, overall nuclear security in Pakistan? Uh, Tom Countryman made uh, reference to these centers of excellence that have been uh, expanding around the world. I will say I was able to visit Pakistan Center of Excellence a few years ago, and uh, they have uh, really done an excellent job to establish a program there that is not only serving Pakistan's interests, but is also serving on a regional basis uh, to provide training with the help of the IAEA and so forth. So uh, they have done quite a bit, and I've seen their awareness raised of issues like the necessity of personnel reliability, careful attention, to uh, who they're hiring into their complex and so forth. So some good steps have been taken. But I will say, sir, that this is a, a two-sided problem, and the other side isn't so good. We've been very concerned about Pakistan's deployment of battlefield nuclear weapons. Battlefield nuclear weapons, by their very nature, pose security threats mm -hmm. because you're taking nuclear material, battlefield nuclear weapons, out to the field where uh, as you know, necessity, as of necessity, they, they cannot be made as secure. So uh, we are really uh, quite concerned about this and we've made our concerns known and, uh, are, and will continue to press them about what we consider to be the destabilizing aspects of their battlefield nuclear weapons program. Speaking of regionally, uh, how about India? How would you assess the overall nuclear stability there? 
India is uh, at an earlier stage in establishing their own center of excellence, but they are also working with us uh, quite extensively and vigorously in uh, the nuclear security summit context. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi will be here for uh, the nuclear security summit, and uh, we have seen uh, quite a bit of advancement in India's work on this problem in recent years. Do you want to add anything, Tom, on this? One more, China. Give an assessment of China's nuclear security. Again, we've been very glad that China has been working with us in the uh, nuclear security summit uh, context. Uh, President Xi will be here for the for the summit, so they are paying attention to this matter at a very high level. This very day, uh, Secretary Moniz is in Beijing to cut the ribbon on their own center of excellence to work on this nuclear security problem. I talked a moment ago about the necessity of pragmatism. I call these kind of bread and butter approaches to nuclear security, really getting the institutions in those countries to focus on the training on the hardware, on putting in place the necessary guns, gates, and guards to take care of these problems. And these centers of excellence serve as a locus to do that kind of work. So uh, again, it's a developing story with China, but, but we feel like they are uh, taking some very important steps. With regard to China and North Korea, we often uh, say that uh, you know, our best leverage in North Korea is with China. Does China feel sufficient urgency uh, to deal with the issue in North Korea of nuclear security. I'll let Mr. Countryman take that question, please. Yeah, of course, we don't define North Korea as a nuclear security issue. It is a proliferation threat, uh, a state in possession now, apparently, of nuclear weapons. Uh, China is, I would say, there are better experts on China than me, but I would say is at a point of transition. It has traditionally had a view of North Korea as an important buffer zone between China and a U.S. military presence in South Korea, and therefore had an interest in sustaining the regime. It still sees that interest, and that's very much in their foreign policy tradition. But I think it is clear that definitely within the Chinese society, as well as within the Chinese government, there is a greater realization that the security threat to China is not the U.S. troops in South Korea. It is the existence of North Korean nuclear warheads and the likelihood that that could be used to start a confrontation on the peninsula. So I see it evolving, but I can't say it is yet, uh, it has fully sunk in to the Chinese thinking. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The fact is, though, I appreciate the line of questioning, that the world and us, we're less secure from a nuclear standpoint because of development since 2009 in Pakistan, India, and China. No question, that's a yes, no. That, that's true, is it not? Sir, I'm not sure I agree with you because I do see how assiduously we are working with all of those countries. Again, the nuclear security summit context has been uh, a very good one for us to get uh, further intertwined uh, with uh, the authorities, with the institutions in those countries who are working on these problems. The comments I made a few moments ago about the development of nuclear weapons in those countries, now that is a, is a question that um, you know, has been long developing, and in fact, uh, the emergence of a nuclear arms race 
in Asia, and particularly in South Asia, is one that has been concerning a number of administrations over time. So the, if you're talking about the, uh, the issue of nuclear terrorism, I do feel like we've made signal progress in that, in that area. If you are talking about the development of new nuclear weapons capabilities, there's no question that we have some uh, important and uh, troubling modernization programs going on. We've got to continue to wrestle with those in a variety of ways. Uh, I don't think there's any question. The answer is yes. Senator Menendez. Yep. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, welcome. I, I see that you are all appropriately dressed for the day uh, and uh, appreciate all the green out there. Um, I have uh, some concerns. Let me see how much I can get into this line of questioning. In the case of tests of ballistic missiles capable of delivering nuclear payloads, whether by Iran or Russia or North Korea or Pakistan, does the State Department see any other options uh, than following the route of condemnation in the UN Security Council to try to push back on this because condemnation doesn't seem to be working to mitigate those realities? Well, first, they are significantly different cases among the countries you cited, Russia, Pakistan, Iran, and North Korea. There are specific UN Security Council resolutions and specific U.S. legislation with regards to Iran and North Korea, and we are, of course, committed to implementing those. Uh, in the case of, uh, uh, let's take Iran first. The concern in Iran is first that it is participating in a regional ballistic missile arms race, uh, even if all of these missiles being built by various countries in the Middle East are armed with conventional warheads, as we assume they will be, they are in themselves a destabilizing factor. And that's a recognition that is contained in the Security Council resolutions that prohibited Iran from testing or from acquiring ballistic missile technology. Now, a number have noted that the UN Security Council Resolution 2231 modified the outright ban on ballistic missile testing and changed it to call upon. To us, that is not a significant difference, but the far more important point is that the previous resolution's ban on providing ballistic missile technology to Iran remains in place. Call upon and is not a far lesser standard. <laughs> if I call upon you, but you decide not to go ahead and listen to what I call upon you to do, what is the consequence? Nothing, right? The consequence remains that, as I was saying, the previous resolution required all countries not to provide Iran with ballistic missile technology. And that has been the focus of our efforts over many years. We believe we have significantly slowed any progress Iran has made. Well, we continue to implement those okay. strategic trade controls today. We have partners in many countries. I, I appreciate your, your lengthy answer, but it is verbatim from what I, I would get from the testimony. The problem is, is that call upon is a far lesser standard, number one. 
Number two, Iran is moving forward significantly. They're on the verge of, uh, or, or did, or is about, I was reading about, uh, sending a uh, missile into space that would change the whole dynamics. And it doesn't seem to me that we are uh, very committed to create actionable items other than condemning their, uh, their, uh, their uh, testing. So uh, let me ask you this. Uh, you said, Mr. Countryman, that uh, the, um, the summit is going to, large parts of the summit's work is going to be taken over by the IAEA, is that correct? A significant portion, yes. Significant portion. Uh, how important is that? Well, uh, important in many different dimensions. First of all, it is important that there is a body with near universal membership, that is the International Atomic Energy, Energy Agency, that also has the technical capability to take the standards developed in this smaller voluntary group and make them global and to follow up in a persistent way. Uh, so I think that the IAE's reputation and its capability to set so global it's standards. It's going to be important. It's very important. Very and important. it is also okay. important for enhancing the overall reputation of the It's going to be very IAEA. important. So here's what my concern is. When Secretary Kerry appeared before the committee to discuss the budget, I raised a U.S. Government Accountability Office report that I commissioned along with Senator Kirk. In that report, the GAO's preliminary findings raised significant concerns about the challenges and limitations that the IAEA faces. To name a few, uh, a limited budget from irregular funding sources, human resource shortfalls, uh, certain important equipment operating at capacity already, limited analytical capabilities that will be tested by the new mandates of the JCPOA. Forget about anything they're going to do in pursuit of the summit. Uh, a need for $10 million per year over for the course of 15 years above its present budget, as well as a lack of authorities. It will have to depend significant uh, degree on the cooperation of the Iranian state. And the GAO's preliminary observations point directly to future problems with monitoring, verifying, and meeting the requirements of the JCPOA. So my point is, if in fact we have the challenges that the GAO report talks about the JCPOA, while we still want the IAEA to be a central, uh, important international body to deal with all these other issues that we're talking about, aren't we putting a significant part of our national security interests uh, in an agency that is underfunded, understaffed, doesn't have the human resource capacity, and uh, is going to depend to a large degree on the voluntary actions of others? Uh, first, I would say that the additional duties that are being transferred from the Nuclear Security Summit to the IAEA are not what will break the bank for the IAEA. Second, I absolutely agree that the significant additional costs of Iran implementation add to the IAEA's budget concerns. The good news here is that a number of countries, dozens around the world, have made clear their commitment to fund the extra costs above the ordinary monitoring costs associated with Iran. So we've covered but the budget for the next 15 years in a, at the rate that the IAEA and the GAO says is necessary. I don't have a concern that we, we will be unable to meet the JCPOA specific costs 
that are above the normal safeguard monitoring costs. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to a point, and I'm glad you asked it, that I made in my opening statement. I would like to see this administration and this Congress make a long-term commitment to steadily expanded resources for the International Atomic Energy Agency because, yes, it is that central to U.S. security and to global security. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses for your time today. Just to follow up on some discussion of the IAEA uh, and the JCPOA. Uh, um, the material ship was shipped to Russia. Uh, are we, we have assurances that it is being stored uh, safely uh, and that IAEA has access to those uh, or the inspection regime is being carried out uh, and a plan to do that? I need to check to get you a more precise answer, but I don't believe we have any concerns about that material once it's in Russia. It adds, it's not going back to Iran, it adds to a very large stockpile of enriched uranium in Russia. We don't have a concern about Russian misuse. If you could get back to us on the, sort of the inspection regime and the plan for that, that would be, that would be fantastic. Uh, in April of 2009, actually let me follow up on a little bit more with Iran uh, as well. Uh, there had been reports in January after the North Korea nuclear test uh, of continued cooperation, uh, communication between Iran and North Korea regarding uh, nuclear proliferation and other issues. Uh, there were even some reports that Iran was believed to be housing uh, some nuclear weapons-related technology in North Korea. Could you talk, uh, either one of you, about uh, any involvement linkage between North Korea and Iran in terms of nuclear issues? Uh, sir, these are uh, very sensitive matters that we can provide a very, uh, uh, a very serious briefing on uh, in another setting. What I will say, and it adds to the point that Assistant Secretary Countryman made a moment ago, we have gone beyond uh, using things like the UN Security Council resolutions to building up other capacity, for example, through the Proliferation Security Initiative. We've got major capacity building efforts going on throughout Asia that have led to a wide-ranging partnership. A lot of countries in the region, uh, transit countries like uh, places uh, where shipments flow through like Singapore and so forth, working very closely with us to uh, enhance abilities to interdict those kinds of shipments. So I did want to get the point uh, uh, on the table that, that there are other ways we've gone about working these problems as well, including uh, the missile technology control regime, long-standing technology controls that are internationally uh, embraced and implemented. There are a lot of ways we go about handling these problems. But uh, in terms of your precise question, to get you precise answers, we'd have to take it to a different setting. And, and perhaps in this setting, without uh, going into areas where we cannot talk in an open setting here, are, are we concerned about, are you concerned about uh, uh, Iran-North Korea access on nuclear issues? <laughs> we watch it, yes, very, very closely. Thank you. Um, and have we detected, and again, this may be something that you can't answer here, uh, have we more concern recently uh, in activities between the two nations? I would say it's it's been uh, a constant, steady uh, concern that we have just uh, kept an eye on. In April, uh, and we would love to talk about that further in a different setting, in April 2009, uh, President Obama said in a speech in Prague, uh, rules must be bi binding, violations must be punished, Worlds, words must mean something, uh, the world must stand together to prevent the spread of these weapons. Now is the time for a strong international response, and North Korea must know that the path 
to security and respect will never come through threats and illegal weapons. All nations must come together to build a stronger global regime, and that's why we must stand shoulder to shoulder to pressure the North Koreans to change course. Uh, could you talk a little bit about North Korea, the threat that North Korea poses uh, to the administration's nuclear agenda and what it means to, quote unquote, punish North Korea, um, uh, what means we have to punish North Korea, uh, that we've employed additional considerations being made in addition to the executive order last night and others? Yes, and thank you, sir, for, uh, for raising the fact that the president signed a new executive order last night that uh, in effect, uh, puts in place all the authorities needed to implement the legislation worked out uh, with, with the Congress, which he signed into law, uh, and also then uh, enables and enhances our ability to implement the UN Security Council resolution. Let me take just a minute to talk further about what went into the UN Security Council resolution. It went far beyond what we have ever done in the past to sanction North Korea, and in particular, zeroed in on their ability to ship goods in and out of the country. It's put significant, significant uh, uh, constraints on their ability to ship uh, by sea, by uh, rail, and here it was important to ensure that China was ready to come along because China in the past has, has not been ready to put in place such intensive and uh, tight uh, sanctions constraints. So I do think that there is a qualitative difference about this UN Security Council resolution. First of all, that will really shut down shipments in and out of North Korea, that's one. But the second point is it is also targeting luxury goods. We have a problem in Iran we knew that there was a politically active middle class that was providing a kind of leverage on the top leadership to make some decisions about coming along with the JCPOA P5 plus one negotiations. It's not the same kind of situation, a different kind of society, a different kind of economy in North Korea. So we feel that the importance of these constraints on shipment of luxury goods into North Korea get at precisely that elite and so also have the potential to have greater leverage than we've been able to have in the past. So I do think that we are in a better place, uh, but the proof of the pudding is in the making. Is, is this UNSCR going to be implemented or not? And that's what we're focused on now. And it's my understanding that China is not going to take action on its own beyond the Security Council resolution. Is that correct when it comes to this issue, proliferation of nuclear issues? You want to take that? Yeah, a couple of points to on that question and to add to what the Undersecretary said. Uh, in dealing with North Korea and finding the levers that will influence its behavior, you have to be realistic. This is a regime that has prioritized missile and nuclear de development above feeding its own people. And that limits what you can do. It means that we do have to focus on two pressure points. One is hard currency earnings and the other is the elites of the regime who support the beloved marshal as leader. How to have a direct effect upon them. And that's why this Security Council resolution goes into such mind-numbing detail, has to get down to close exemptions and questionable interpretations from previous resolutions. And in that sense, it's very strong but you have to realize you're working at a target that has few openings. As far as China goes, uh, we do not assume that Chinese support for a strong resolution is the same as a Chinese determination to implement that resolution faithfully. 
but we also don't assume they won't do it. They have made clear they are ready to work with us on detailed implementation and consultation on a range of issues with regard to this resolution. Uh, what they're prepared to do on the political side that goes beyond implementation of this resolution, I'm sorry, is not my field. Yep, so. understand, understand. And, and Secretary Countryman, if I may, Mr. Chairman, one additional question on China. Uh, March 9, 2016, report by the Institute for Science and International Security, uh, North Korean efforts to produce indigenous fuel for the IRT reactor at Yongbyon uh, appear to have started several years ago. One sign was North Korea's 2012, this is according to the report, procurement in China of a considerable amount of foreign equipment. In fact, a complete production line for making this fuel, according to a source knowledgeable about North Korea's nuclear programs. Uh, do you know if that statement is accurate that was reported by the Institute for Science and uh, International Security? I don't. I will check. I'll just say that I've previously said before this committee that the Chinese economy has been the primary source of advanced nuclear and ballistic technology and materials for North Korea for a long time. And do we know the name of the entities that are responsible for that in uh, China? On the Chinese side or on the Korean the side? The Chinese side. On the Korean side, I think we do. On the Chinese side, I'll have to check the exact report. And have we issued any kind of sanctions on entities that we may have identified for such a uh, technology, uh, technology uh, transfer exchange? Uh, for transfer of technology to Iran. For sales of equipment, <clears throat> yeah. uh, We have previously sanctioned Chinese entities. We do that on a regular basis according to the evidence. I have to check on this particular case. But that was for Iran. We haven't done that for China or a China-North uh, Korea exchange. I'll have to check. I believe we have, but I have to double check. Thank you, sir. Senator Markey. Yep. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank uh, the ranking member, Senator Cardin, for his indulgence allowing me to go at this time. So the first time I ever sat in this committee was in May of the year 1980. And Senator Glenn was the uh, subcommittee chairman of the nonproliferation. And uh, the United States had decided that it was going to sell 55 tons of uranium to India without any full-scope safeguards. The Pakistanis were going crazy, very upset. Um, Warren Christopher sat here to defend it. I was going to make the uh, proposal in the House to defeat it. I was successful in defeating it in the House. Senator Glenn made it here in the Senate, and he lost by one vote, and that uranium went on to India without full-scope safeguards. And ultimately, Pakistan did react terms of its nuclear program. It just created a syndrome. So that was 1980. And so here we are. We're talking about India and Pakistan. We're talking about their nuclear proliferation. And by the way, the 2008 uh, nuclear agreement with India created a similar dynamic where they were able to cho choose which one of their plants were under full scope safeguards. And the Pakistani said that they will ramp up their production plutonium reactor uh, to match it in order to create more nuclear weapons. So all of that is part of the kind of the question I'm about to ask, which just turns to the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Korean situation and the domino effect that unfolds if the U.S. doesn't give the leadership up front. But uh, I'd like to just begin by thanking all of you for your lifelong commitment to nuclear nonproliferation, to Secretary uh, Tauscher, my old pal, for her lifelong commitment to it as well. 
So both the Chinese and Japanese reprocessing plans are supported by the French state-owned firm Arriva, and media reports have suggested that French leaders have been actively encouraging both Japan and China to maintain their plans to reprocess. In the past, the United States had succeeded in preventing the spread of reprocessing facilities in East Asia by persuading our French allies not to spread this technology to additional countries. Have you or anyone else in the administration discussed the dangers of large-scale plutonium reprocessing in East Asia with French leaders? Yes. And what is the response that you have received from them? Uh, without going into detail on uh, a, a confidential exchange, I would note that the French have progressed more than other countries in designing a nuclear fuel cycle that makes intelligent and nearly economically rational use of plutonium. Uh, <clears throat> they believe that it can be done. We have concerns not about the French uh, record or about French security or French commitment to nonproliferation, but we have a different set of concerns in Asia and that's the point that I made to French counterparts. Well, and what is that additional concern? Well, the ad additional concern is, as, as you and a couple of other senators have noted, uh, there is a degree of competition among the major powers in East Asia. It is a competition that, in my view, extends into irrational spheres, such as hey, they have this technology, we got to have it too. No matter that it is a technology that makes no economic sense uh, and that would uh, not improve their standing in the world. Perfect, so thank you. So that's my 1982 book, Nuclear Peril, The Politics of Proliferation, which is about how it will just unfold uh, and uh, India will beget Pakistan, Pakistan will beget Iran, et cetera, et cetera, right? I, so, I don't yeah. quite see that linear connection, we but just there have is. To, we, well, just it all becomes a big competition. That's all I'm saying. The politics of it is you're not a real nation unless you can do it, too. Okay? You don't get the respect if you can't do it. So the nuclear cooperation agreement between the United States and Japan will need to be renewed in several years. The current agreement signed in 1988 provides advanced consent for Japan to transfer spent fuel to Europe for reprocessing. As the next administration considers a new nuclear cooperation agreement with Japan, what steps should it take to reduce Japan's reliance on reprocessing and to encourage it to rely on alternative means for disposing of spent fuel? One of the dangers of Chinese and Japanese reprocessing, obviously, is that it will create pressure on South Korea to pursue its own reprocessing efforts and that would undermine our efforts to achieve the denuclearization of the Korean uh, Peninsula uh, and to prevent North Korea's nuclear ambitions from creating further pressures for proliferation. So what are our conversations with Japan? Do they understand this politics uh, of proliferation issue uh, and how ultimately they are less safe rather than more safe if they move in that direction? Uh number of points there, but to the central question, first it's important to note that uh, the Japanese plant at Rokosho is not currently in operation. There is no plan to begin operation before 2018. 
the Chinese plant by Arriva that you refer to is not yet built, not yet a contract to build it, although the Chinese certainly know how to do reprocessing on their own. Uh, in terms of conversations with Japan and other Asian partners, we're doing that both on a more technical level uh, through the Department of Energy on a uh, uh, level of security and non-proliferation interests through the Department of State. Uh, we think that there are genuine economic questions where it's important that the U.S. and its partners in Asia have a common understanding of the economic and non-proliferation issues at stake before making a decision about renewal of the 1-2-3 agreement, for example, with Japan. Okay, well, the more pressure, the better from us. We can't preach temperance from a bar stool. We have to have the highest standards in the world, and we have to impose them, especially in this area and any country that we have influence over. And finally, as part of the Pentagon plan for new nuclear weapons, uh, the Pentagon has proposed development of a new nuclear air-launched uh, cruise missile with significantly altered features, including improved range, stealth, and precision. The administration is also planning to upgrade the B-61 gravity bomb with a new tail kit that would allow for improved targeting, permitting the warhead to have a similar yield. These improvements have led former Secretary of Defense William Perry to suggest that the Pentagon's modernization plans could make it easier for future presidents to conduct so-called limited nuclear wars. And as retired Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General James Cartwright told the New York Times in January, what going smaller does is to make the weapons more thinkable. Um, Secretary Gottmiola, in your view, do these plans make us safer, or do they potentially make the world more dangerous? Uh, first, I'd like to talk about the B-61, if I may, sir. Uh, the president, in uh, his uh, nuclear posture review, and uh, Ford, in its implementation, has stressed that we will not create any new nuclear weapon uh, capabilities. And I know that there have been commentaries uh, in the outside uh, media among experts uh, in this regard, but in fact, uh, that is not the case. There are no new missions, uh, no new capabilities inherent in these, uh, these um, life-extended B-61 uh, bombs. And in fact, the way that the B-61 is going through a life extension program is so as to consolidate uh, several different types of B61 into a single B61, so-called 12. And that, in effect, uh, allows us to uh, think about further reductions in our gravity bombs, because we are able to uh, consolidate, essentially, uh, the different types that were applied to different missions uh, into a single type. But there are no new missions being developed for the system, no new capabilities. So you're saying it won't have improved targeting, and it won't have a smaller yield, and it won't be, as a result, more usable? Uh, I do not agree with that statement, sir. Okay. I, I don't think nuclear weapons are very usable, um, period. I understand that, but again, I'm just... And being... certainly, I do want to uh, tie it back to the Nuclear Posture Review and the President's policy agreed by our entire uh, administration, including the Pentagon, that we want to de-emphasize nuclear weapons in our national security doctrine, and we have effectively done so over the past seven plus years at this point, and that will continue to be the trajectory of our policy. 
Um, I guess I would say, thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman, as the Iranians seek to miniaturize and make them more precise as we do the same thing with one of our weapons, again, we're preaching temperance from a bar stool, okay? Yep. We have to basically not try to make them more usable ourselves. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, thank you very much. And now we'll move to someone who's been involved in proliferation on his own, the articulate uh, <laughs> Senator Rubio, who we welcome back to the dais. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank uh, Secretary Gottmiller, I wanted to ask you, what's the uh, administration's plan to respond to Russia's request uh, under the Open Skies Treaty to allow surveillance planes uh, with high-powered digital cameras? I know there's been a lot of concern about that in open press. Yes, sir. Let me just say a word about the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, it is a treaty that uh, was uh, first uh, created by President Eisenhower, by General Eisenhower, back during the 1950s. He saw it as a benefit to us and our allies to have the kind of mutual confidence building that would come from uh, being able to fly uh, airborne platforms over the Soviet Union at that time. And uh, I, so I want to stress, first of all, that this treaty is completely reciprocal. And in fact, the Russians uh, have a quota of about 20 flights a year. They've used three or four of those flights uh, in the last uh, couple of years. We fly much more frequently over the Russian Federation with our, our allies and partners in Europe than they fly over the United States. So that's just some basic, basic facts about the treaty. With regard to the digital sensors you mentioned, that um, was written into the treaty when it was negotiated. We are seeing the end of wet film cameras. Uh, our own guys can't get their hands on film for the cameras. There's, it's simply become an obsolete technology as everybody who's gone out and bought a digital camera will, will recognize. So in order to continue to implement the treaty, all treaty partners are now looking at digital cameras, we ourselves will want to deploy digital uh, cameras in the future. One final point about how this treaty differs from a, a kind of, uh, and, and the Russian platform differs from a, a spy platform, one of their national technical means, one of their satellite birds, something like that. It differs because we are closely intertwined with how they implement. Our technicians are on those planes, when they fly across the country, we get every single photograph they take so we can see what they're photographing. That's much different from national technical means. We don't know what they're photographing with their satellites. But so. I guess my question is how, are we, how does the administration intend to respond? Is it your testimony then that we view their request as in compliance with the agreement? It's, it's absolutely in compliance with the agreement. It's something we're going to want to do. So is Russia well. in full compliance with the treaty given it imposes restriction on territories that's subject to the surveillance? We have, uh, if I could just make one final point on the last thing, um, you know, national technical means, you know, we can mitigate, sometimes we know what's happening, but with open skies, we have the right under the treaty to take mitigating measures. If we don't want the Russians to see something, we can mitigate, and we plan for that and think about it. So that's, that's one final point. Um, on- um, Territory. There are restrictions on yes. where they can go. We are concerned, and um, if you've had a chance to look at our compliance report uh, in the last year, you will see there are several concerns laid out about these restrictions that the Russians are placing, for example, on our ability to fly close to what we consider, and everybody else considers, sovereign Georgian territory. The Russians say, we don't want you flying close to Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So these are compliance concerns. We have raised them with uh, the Russian Federation. We've just been- What about domestically in the, U in the, in the US? In the US? Yes. I mean, are I'm concerns sorry. about territorial limitations on them are they in compliance with the agreement in terms of how it, the, what it imposes on them over U.S. territory? 
we essentially are ourselves in compliance with the treaty, so we let them fly according to proper requests over U.S. territory. Have they exceeded? Have they asked to go to areas that are not necessarily uh, part of the treaty? In essence, for example, over the U.S. electrical grid and other sorts of areas. Well, There's we been open source reporting that these flights are taking pictures of and looking at areas that are not national defense related per se, but in fact have to do with our electrical grid and other things of this nature. I've, I've seen the open source reporting. So is, is there a, a concern about that? Right, sir. I think we have, to, we have to take account of the fact that their national technical means, their spy satellites and other, other means are, are constantly photographing our entire territory. Again, they have the right to, uh, to photograph. They have to file their flight plans, though. They have our experts on board, our technicians, and we get the photos that we take, that they take, and so do all the other treaty partners. So I think there's actually an advantage because then we know what, what is interesting them. There's an advantage to us. Well, so let me read you a quote from Lieutenant General, uh, uh, from General Stewart, the director of DIA, who recently testified that, uh, here's this quote. He said, I have great concern about the quality of the imagery, the quantity of the imagery, the ability to do post-processing of digital imagery and what that allows them to see as foundational intelligence that I would love to have personally and I would love to deny the Russians having that capability, end quote. So I signed a letter with my Democratic and Republican colleagues on the Senate Intelligence Committee highlighting the concerns of professionals such as these about this request. Is he wrong in this statement? General Stewart has particular responsibilities related to intelligence collection and national technical means. I do want to stress that the Open Skies Treaty is an arms control treaty with a larger set of, of uh, goals and purposes, among them confidence building, mutual confidence building. And so I do think that the treaty um, has a great value in that regard. It has a great value to our allies and to our partners, such as Ukraine. Ukrainians made great use of the treaty during this terrible crisis with Russia. So I do think we need to bear in mind that the purpose is somewhat different from national technical means. It has a larger purpose, which is mutual confidence and predictability. And the predictability is of great value uh, nowadays. So I think General Stewart and I uh, have a somewhat different view of the utility of the treaty, but certainly I understand his responsibilities and, and what they entail. Well, how, how, you talk about this. Uh, let me ask you one more question. How can we trust that Russia is sharing information acquired through the treaty with the treaty partners? Uh, because we are there as they take the pictures, and we know what, what they're taking, and we get the material, you know, basically. Um, so we have, full, we have full confidence that they are, in fact, sharing the information that they're acquiring? Uh, yes, we do. And, sir, I just wanted to take note that there has been, uh, to my knowledge, a recent study that has come out. It is classified in nature, but I think you and your colleagues would, would benefit from, from seeing it. It's just come out in, in the last couple of days, so I think it would be well worth getting it to you for a review of it. Okay. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, once again, thank you all for your, for your work. Uh, they made a couple observations in regards uh, to North Korea. I think it was uh, good news that we were able to get, through U.S. leadership, the Security Council action against North Korea, including, of course, the support of China. Uh, now, as you pointed out, uh, Secretary Guttmuller is going to be up to uh, us to enforce that resolution, uh, particularly China, in its act actions in order to make those uh, sanctions really um, hold. So uh, I think that's going to be a challenge. 
but I think we need to focus uh, to enforce the international sanctions against North Korea. Uh, in regards to Iran, I was listening to the exchange with, with Senator Menendez. Um, to me, there is a, there, I agree with Senator Menendez as to a difference in, in, in the tone of the resolution as to the previous resolutions. The issue is that enforcing the ballistic missile restrictions is totally consistent with the JCPOA. We've said that several times. The President of the United States has said that. So having a statutory basis for this, these um, uh, violations, to me, is something that it would help the U.S. in making it clear that we will not allow Iran to violate its ballistic missile uh, restrictions and that uh, there will be uh, penalties if they do. Uh, regardless of whether the Security Council is, is capable of, uh, of, of passing uh, sanctions or not. We certainly hope the Security Council will pass sanctions. So it seems to me that helps you and that you should be working with Congress in order to achieve uh, that type of, uh, of um, authority uh, and make it clear to our international partners that, yes, we would like to see the international community move forward. That's our intentions for illicit activities by Iran. But if not, the United States, we already have the authority, but we're going to give you the statutory authority uh, to move forward in that area. I, I would think that would be helpful. And I see, I, I, I'm going to put into the record, uh, Secretary Countryman's uh, shaking his head in an affirmative direction. So, Mr. Chairman, we have the administration's support so, for that. So enter. <laughs> Uh, the um, the other issue I would just like to um, to uh, comment on is Pakistan. There's been an exchange here in regards to uh, Pakistan and, and, and their activities. It's obviously very distressful that they will not work with us on a fossil material uh, treaty uh, and that they are producing uh, uh, materials at a very fast rate. Uh, when we look at our relationship with Pakistan, we look at a partner that we hope would be fighting uh, ISIL and, uh, and dealing with the safe havens and, and their border areas, uh, the mountainous border areas with Afghanistan. So the attentions that they're paying on their nuclear development uh, seems to be inconsistent with where the priorities need to be in that region. So it is somewhat frustrating that we haven't made more progress, particularly when they are seeking stronger uh, help from the United States in regards to their security measures. So I know Senator Corker has commented about that in the past, and I do think that this is an issue that needs to be uh, engaged with Pakistan as we deal with some of the other security-related uh, issues. That's not the question I was going to ask. My question I want to ask is, uh, in this nuclear uh, security summit, uh, it, it's, could you just share with us whether there will be an opportunity to expand beyond radiological weapons, but to get, deal with weapons of mass destruction? We've seen too many examples where weapons of mass destruction have been used uh, against, uh, in many cases, civilian population. Uh, and is there an effort being made in this uh, security conference to deal with uh, other than just radiological uh, weapons? Uh, the agenda for the summit itself uh, includes four sessions in which the presidents and prime ministers and other leaders present 
engage in a free-flowing discussion. That's the most interesting thing, really, about this process, is it's not a United Nations meeting where everybody stands up and reads their 10-minute speech. Uh, it is actually uh, a discussion. And the final session includes a discussion among the leaders about how to extend the lessons learned from the nuclear security summit process into combating other weapons of mass destruction and preventing terrorist access to other weapons. So yes, that's part of the transitional legacy of this summit. And does the U.S. have uh, uh, an intent to be engaged on, these, on this particular subject of, of dealing with weapons of mass destruction? We are deeply engaged across the board, particularly uh, in prevent in working with the countries of the Middle East that are seeking to ensure that El Daesh does not acquire weapons of mass destruction technology in the Middle East. Thank you. The, the other area that I mentioned in my opening statement is the absence of Russia. There, that is very much uh, believed to be part of just the uh, status of our current relationship with Russia, uh, the problems in Ukraine and elsewhere. But it also has been clear that when the United States and Russia have worked together, particularly on the technical aspects of nuclear security, that there are better results. So are we still having that type of conversations with the Russians as it relates to implementing some of the technical aspects of nuclear security issues? Very much, Senator. Uh, in fact, we are uh, continuing to work with them on removal of highly enriched uranium from uh, countries uh, around the world. Uzbekistan was a recent, uh, a recent project of that kind where they worked with us, and we already talked about the removal of enriched uranium, highly enriched uranium from Iran. So they have been willing to step forward. So frankly, it's been rather puzzling to us first of all, why they didn't want to remain involved in the nuclear security summit, but also why they haven't been eager to continue to expand under this uh, agreement that was negotiated and signed uh, in June of 2013, the so-called MINEPR agreement, why they haven't been willing to move forward with further nuclear security cooperation. And I, my personal assessment is that it has uh, fallen prey to the downturn in our relationship. But it is very interesting that they have picked and choosed, picked and chosen rather, uh, what they want to uh, continue to work with us on. Uh, you mentioned several important projects already. Another one was the removal of 1,300 tons of chemical weapons from Syria. They were a close partner in that effort. Uh, and uh, they've been a close partner in implementation of the JCPOA, not only on the removal of HEU, but on other matters. So it's a very interesting uh, conundrum, in my view. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ms. Godmiller, let me say, you mentioned that the Open Skies Treaty had value of being a confidence-building uh, matter, uh, an enterprise. I got to tell you that uh, I find that view uh, delusional, to be honest with you. I, I don't understand how anything dealing with the Russians uh, could be characterized as confidence building under the present circumstances that we have with the Russian Federation today. So with all due respect, uh, I think you guys are going up a, a, a blind alley there. 
I want to talk about your own report, the State Department's compliance report that states, and this is again re uh, referring to the uh, Open Skies Treaty, your own report states that Russia routinely prohibits U.S. flights over Russian territory um, in the Caucasus, around Moscow, and in uh, Kaliningrad, and regularly denies priority access to airfields and air traffic control when we're trying to conduct those flights. What are you doing about that? Um, Senator, I will stress, uh, first of all, that these are, they appeared in the compliance report because they are very serious compliance concerns that we have about the, about the behavior of the Russian Federation. So I absolutely agree with you. So what are you doing that, about sir? it? What we are doing about it is we um, have uh, linked arms with our allies uh, and we are uh, getting um, now uh, well, we are already in the course of talking to the Russians about many of these problems, but uh, getting uh, ready for a coordinated effort to work together with them to solve. We consider these compliance problems and we want to get them solved because we see the importance of this, this treaty. So in fact, you've done really nothing about it at this point, other than getting ready. Is that what you're saying? No, I wouldn't say that, sir. We have been raising these issues over time, but I will say that we want to redouble our efforts now. And the other thing that we have done is uh, essentially uh, we have dialed back on any flexibility that we may have shown in the past. So we are essentially uh, really uh, taking uh, a very stringent approach to implementation of the treaty with regard to the Russians now. With all due respect, I just, I don't find anything you've told me comforting. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We have a second panel and uh, we're getting ready to introduce them. I, I want to thank you both for being here. I, this committee um, is the one committee, there may be others, but it's been one where we've worked uh, strongly in a bipartisan way and try to resolve our issues and try to, even when we agree to disagree agreeably. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have to say, I, again, I've had a, many personal meetings or at least encounters with both of you, and I respect you uh, personally. Um, I do find that it's, it's a little, both of you are career people. It's not as if you've come in as political appointments. You've been doing what you've been doing for a long, long time. Um, and uh, look, I, I don't think there's any doubt that today there's more potential for nuclear conflict than there was in 2009. No question. And even though we've made some strides relative to nuclear security, relative to uh, elements getting in terrorist hands, as was mentioned, and we mentioned some of the accomplishments that have been occurred, that have occurred, the potential for military miscalculation in nuclear weapons today is higher by far, by far, by orders of magnitude than it was in 2009. And I'm just going to say, I get disappointed when I see career people that are professional that uh, come to these hearings and gloss over, you know, continue to talk about the glass is half full when we've gone significantly downhill relative to nuclear proliferation. So uh, again, I, I, I didn't expect this hearing to be as it's turned out to be today. Um, I'm disappointed that there's not an acknowledgement of the reality that exists around the world. Um, there's little uh, 
segues and mentionings of things that are problems, but uh, just doesn't seem with the two of you, I'm sorry, to be a realization that we've been on a very negative slope relative to this issue. And people are not honoring treaties. Um, Asia is in a, going in a very different direction than we had hoped, and yet y'all are here telling us how, gosh, we've done a wonderful job. So I just want to express my disappointment with the two of you being here today and your testimony. I'm sorry. Um, I uh, have been concerned about national security issues for some time. Candidly, this today, the highlighting of this, uh, of this particular issue today has heightened that because, again, it just uh, seems to me that uh, we deal in a world that uh, doesn't focus on reality. So, again, I, I thank you for your service. I, I, really do, I really do thank you for your service. That's sincere. I'm disappointed uh, in your testimony today, and, and um, I, I'm sorry, I just am. I'm very direct and transparent in my thinking and feeling, and I'm just disappointed in uh, the lack of urgency, seriousness around the, the, where the world is going relative to these issues uh, in your testimony today. Yes, sir. Mr. Chairman, I, first of all, I think this has been a very helpful hearing. Uh, it's an open session, as it should be an open session. Some of the issues that we need to talk about must be in closed sessions, and I think that would might uh, we've had those discussions in the past, and I think we need to have them going forward, because I think some of these issues are only can be adequately discussed in a closed session. I I, I just take a different view of uh, the progress we've made, not just during the Obama administration, but also during the George W. Bush administration and previous administrations, on dealing with the realities that it's a much more dangerous world out there with states that will do things that are unthinkable, but they'll do it. And the support of terrorist organizations and the strength that terrorist organizations have. But that when we look at the record over the last couple decades, including the Obama administration, the amount of controls over nuclear materials has been strengthened pretty dramatically, and the reductions of the nuclear uh, weapons have been pretty dramatic. When you look at the numbers and you look at the risk factors. So I think we've made constant progress on nuclear security. Do we have to make more? You bet we do. When you have actors like North Korea and Iran and other states that have been mentioned, uh, and when there are two um, uh, countries that dominate the nuclear discussions, which are Russia and the United States. So it's, um, I'm frustrated we can't have a safer environment. I would like to see more progress, but I think a lot of this is just the dangerous situations we have in the world, and I, I very much admire the uh, both uh, Secretary Countryman and Guttmuller for the incredible uh, patience that they've had and effectiveness in dealing with people that uh, we would find very difficult uh, sitting down for any length of time uh, because of their attitudes uh, towards uh, some of the global issues. So with that in mind, uh, I would hope that we will continue to find ways in which our committee can stay engaged in these discussions. Thank you. Thank you again for your testimony. and. I know that you know the record will remain open. I know that you all respond uh, promptly to questions, and I look forward to seeing you in other settings. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Thank Cardin. You. Thank you. This, this uh, will now move to the second panel. Um, that will consist of two witnesses.
First witness is Mr. Will Toby. Mr. Toby is a senior fellow at Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. We thank you uh, for your contribution today. Our second witness will be the Honorable Ellen Tauscher, who we've all gotten to know well and appreciate her contributions on national security at many levels. Um, she served as Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security from 2009 to 2012. I want to thank you both for being here. And uh, as you know, second panels often are not uh, as well attended as first panels, but the contributions you make to the record and our understanding is, is much appreciated. And with that, Mr. Toby, if you would begin. Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, it's a great pleasure to be before the committee again. I was asked to address seven important and difficult questions with the invitation. I'll divide my answers into two parts, nonproliferation and nuclear security. The administration's nonproliferation policy was defined by President Obama's April 2009 Prague speech, which listed his objectives. First came a pledge to seek peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons, although he acknowledged that this goal could not be reached quickly and might not be reached within his lifetime. While the New START Treaty has entered into force, Russia's violation of the INF Treaty and refusal to address non-strategic nuclear weapons, together with the growth of nuclear arsenals in North Korea, Pakistan, and perhaps elsewhere, leave this goal more distant than it was seven years ago. Similarly, we are no closer to a fissile material cutoff treaty or a comprehensive test ban treaty, other non-proliferation goals from the Prague speech. The President sought to strengthen the Non-Proliferation Treaty in three ways, none of which have been fully implemented. Finally, at Prague, the President introduced, quote, a new international effort to secure all vulnerable nuclear material around the world within four years. Unfortunately, this goal, too, has not yet been achieved. Moving to non-proliferation, um, North Korea remains, as has been noted already, a dangerous and intractable threat with a growing arsenal, and it continues to issue threats. Finally, on nonproliferation, the administration may have an opportunity, as has been noted by many members of the committee and some of the earlier uh, witnesses, to foster a decision in Northeast Asia not to pursue civil reprocessing of spent nuclear fuel, which results in separated plutonium. I think actually this is an enormous diplomatic opportunity, and if it were achieved, would advance US and international security. On nuclear security, the best way to prevent nuclear terrorism, recently, security for nuclear materials has improved modestly, while the capabilities of some terrorist groups has grown dramatically, particularly, for example, the Islamic State, suggesting that in, an, in a net calculation, the risk of nuclear terrorism may be higher now than it was two years ago. Areas where there has been significant but still incomplete progress on nuclear security include stringent nuclear security principles, ubiquitous, effective, and sustainable nuclear security, consolidating nuclear weapons and material, building international confidence, 
strengthened security culture and combating complacency, and continuing an effective dialogue after the summit's end. U.S. spending on nuclear security declined from about $800 million in fiscal year 2012 to just over $500 million in fiscal year 2016, a 38% cut, with a further 24% reduction due to come about in fiscal year 2017. Russia's absence from the summit is a pro problem. Uh, it holds the world's largest arsenal of nuclear weapons and largest stockpile of nuclear material. And it faces perhaps growing problems with corruption, organized crime, and Islamic extremism. We will need to reinvigorate cooperation with Russia if we are to address successfully nuclear, the nuclear security issue. Finally, nuclear smuggling remains an issue. The first line of defense is security, but seizures of fissile material outside of authorized control in 2003, 2006, 2010, and 2011 are empirical evidence of nuclear security failures. Intelligence, law enforcement, border security, and sensors are all necessary to combat this problem. We've done much over the past 25 years, Republicans and Democrats, the Congress and the executive branch, but key gaps remain. Progress has slowed, budgets are declining. President Obama urged his colleagues at the last nuclear security summit to sprint toward the finish line. That's exactly the kind of sense of, the sense of urgency that we need. Thank you very much, uh, Secretary Tauscher. Uh, Senator Corker and Senator Cardin, thank you so much uh, for including me today. It's, it's been uh, almost four years since I left the government. Uh, I just want to report on St. Patrick's Day. I'm not only 100% Irish American, but I'm so happy in the private sector. And it's an honor to be back uh, here uh, with colleagues, uh, but to talk about an issue that has taken up uh, a very long part of my private and personal uh, life, both in the government and now that I'm out in the private sector. Uh, I represented the only congressional district with two national labs in it. In the Congress, I sat on the Armed Services Committee for seven terms, and while the Democrats were in the majority, I chaired the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, which is about, about $55 billion of responsibility on uh, nuclear weapons, space satellites, and uh, missile defense. When I became undersecretary uh, in the Obama administration, we had to go forward and get the New START Treaty ratified and negotiated, and I appreciate this committee's support. I also, commit, uh, I also thank this committee for um, actually uh, confirming me to my position. I have submitted remarks uh, for, the, uh, for this hearing, but I want to depart from them because I found it very interesting uh, in your summary, Mr. Chairman, because I think um, you and my 20-year friend, Mr. Cardin, are absolutely right. Your point is very well taken. The world is increasingly complicated and more dangerous. We have people more likely to use nuclear weapons today than we ever have had, I think, except perhaps at times during the Cold War. And Senator Cardin is also right. We've done a lot to try to prevent them from having the material to do that, uh, but every time we seem to make advances, people redouble their efforts. So I just want to take a couple of moments. Um, I sit on the board of the National uh, Nuclear Threat Institute. And uh, I think that, that board and that, 
that group created by Sam Nunn and Ted Turner and others uh, is a terrific outside group. They, they have a monitoring system. They have uh, reports that they give. They have a website that is visited by tens of thousands of people. So from somebody that's now on the outside, I just want to take a few minutes and kind of give you a couple of recommendations. Because while you're both right, what concerns me more than anything is that the debate is not one that the American people or frankly the world is really engaged in. Uh, to a certain extent, they understand we still have nuclear weapons. Most people would assume that the United States had ratified the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. We haven't. I would support the Senate looking at it. I think the people that voted against it in 1999 were probably right. At the time, we had a brand new regime called stockpile stewardship. It was yet proven. It now has been proven. And at the time, the area of cheating was very, very, very front in the minds of people. Could we prevent cheating? Could we detect cheating? And I think we've answered that question, too. So the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, I think, is important. The one most important thing, I think, that we really need your leadership in, and I applaud and commend the bipartisanship of this committee and your leadership, both of you two senators, and that is that we need more predictable, more transparent funding for the complex itself. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on it. Uh, just as far as disclosure, I did sit on the boards of Livermore and Los Alamos until recently, about three years. But we need to be able to maintain unambiguously a quality deterrent. That is the thing that won the Cold War. That is what kept us safe until now. And so the idea that we have an unambiguously quality deterrent that our allies and our adversaries take seriously is the most important thing. It means we need smart at the, people at the labs to deal with the future problems, and we need to be able to be sure that we can, without testing, maintain a safe and reliable deterrent. So I'm anxious to talk about these issues with you. I very much applaud the hard work and Thank the you. leadership that you have. Um, I, I commend you my testimony, and you can take a look at it. All right. Thank, thank you. you. I, I appreciate your uh, desire to move off of your written testimony and address, um, you know, what just happened. And just for what it's worth, I could not agree more with your statement uh, regarding the funding, um, modernization, and, and development. I, I uh, voted for the start New START Treaty. I worked with you in that regard and, and Ben and others. Um, it was the right vote to make. But the thesis around that was that we had this uh, huge inventory of nuclear warheads that we didn't even know were workable, continued to be useful, we didn't know, and the thesis was to narrow down the number of warheads we had and ensure that they had guided systems that were least equivalent to my at the time, BlackBerry, now we're moving on to iPhones, but we had systems, uh, guided systems that really were much like what we had in black and white televisions at one point. And so, you know, for us to invest heavily uh, and to have the capabilities, by the way, down the road, should we ever need them to develop additional materials uh, was very important. And I am concerned that we're not we're not doing those things that we need to do to ensure that we have the best and brightest in the world at these facilities that you just referred to and uh, attracting people and 
uh, stressing the importance of this program. So I appreciate you highlighting that. Uh, we've discussed that. We just had a uh, hearing the other day, the Armed Services Committee, where we were invited to attend, and again, I made that point again there that uh, for this to work for us, we've got to be doing the same thing the Russians are doing, and let's face it, they are taking it seriously, much more seriously than us at the moment, and so I couldn't, I couldn't appreciate your comments uh, more, and I thank you for that. You know, the, the last meeting, I, I acknowledged that we've had some some incremental gains. I acknowledged that in my opening comment. I, I do get distressed when um, we have people who are lifelong public servants who are distinguished and know tremendous amounts uh, around this subject matter. But when I continue to hear this glass is half full, when we've def we definitely, I'm, I'm not even uh, assessing blame, uh, taken huge negative steps, if you will, re relative to nuclear proliferation, I would, um, uh, I mean, it's just, I don't even know how you can debate it, and yet it just seems like we're putting a rosy outlook on, on where we are, and I think we ought to, matter of fact, uh, Secretary, I think if, if we would raise greater alarms about where we are, we might have the kind of funding for these programs, but we just continue to ease along in a way that uh, acts as if, oh, no, we're solving all these problems, the world is wonderful, when the world has not decided to be wonderful. I, I will say I think some of our steps, uh, you know, I'm now getting way off topic, just like you did, but when you take out a leader like Gaddafi, who had cooperated with us on weapons of mass destruction, I think it sends a signal to the world that, you know, if you have weapons of mass destruction, you should keep them and develop them, because otherwise you get taken out. So I think our policies have not been thoughtful relative to how we deal with these nuclear and other uh, weapons of mass destruction. I've been very disappointed, and we're more having a conversation than a Q&A, but uh, the, the, the one, two, three agreements that we have been entering into, to me, have been sending the wrong signals, and uh, I wonder if you might disagree with me or agree with me, but it just seems we've been reluctant to use that negotiation as a point to try to diminish the ability uh, uh, for plutonium reprocessing to be a part of proliferation as we're now discussing. And I, I'd love any comments you might have. Well, I think they call this um, violent agreement, Mr. Chairman, but I think we are in violent agreement on many things. But, you know, when I was undersecretary, both, both the current undersecretary and Tom, uh, the assistant secretary, uh, worked with me. Um, they are terrific people, and they are people that are unlike me coming from the Congress, they are professionals. Um, and I, I will tell you that you've seen this in, in your life in the private sector and, and while you've been senator. When you're in it and you're, and you're tactically moving things forward, it is difficult to lift your head up and kind of play the strategic role that you have to do. And, and they are here to defend what the administration is doing in a very, very complicated time. On the one, two, three agreements, I will say, the problem with the one, two, three agreements is my perception are two things. Um, I voted for the UAE agreement when I was in the, in the uh, House. It was called, uh, if you recall, you, I think Senator uh, Cardin, you were in the House with me, it was called the gold standard. 
problem with having a gold standard is it needs to have two things. It needs to be replicable, and it actually needs to be the best. Uh, the truth was, it is not replicable in my mind. The UAE changed that law on their own. They didn't decide because of our influence. They wanted to have the agreement with us. That they knew that was what we were going to require. They changed the law on their own. UAE, uh, the 123 agreements are for us to be able to sell United States technology into countries. Keep in mind that we have allies like France and then we have the Russians that are perfectly willing to sell this technology to anybody. And no 123 agreement required. So we have become, I would say, dangerously uncompetitive on the nuclear sphere when we, can, when we cannot compete with countries uh, like the French and the Russians who don't require one, two, three agreements and where we have, I think, for the right reasons, very strict controlling laws that create the atmosphere for us to be able to do that. And so, you know, I'm not surprised with the Republic of Korea, for example, with North Korea sitting on its northern border, that their, in, that their instigants is going to be on reprocessing. They're going to want to know that they've got what they've got. One of the reasons why we pushed very hard to have nuclear fuel banks was to give people an alternative to their own reprocessing, to kind of internationalize under the IAEA a rubric of reprocessing and banking so that every little country wasn't doing their own and we couldn't find out what was going on. So once again, I think you're absolutely right. These are enormously complicated circumstances. These one, two, three agreements are tough to do. We don't have the advantage of having our government sell them that help countries do things that we're not necessarily for. And I think that it's a tough environment for us. Mm -hmm. Mr. Toby. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, this is an issue I have a great deal of interest in, and I agree completely with your concern, Secretary Tauscher's concern about the importance of trying to stop the spread of reprocessing. My own view is that 123 agreements can be a useful tool, but they are something of a hammer. Um, they're sort of a blunt, blunt force object. I, I, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be used. Hammers are, are useful, um, but they're not the only tool. And uh, I think the most effective thing the U.S. government could do today to, to address this issue would be first to go to Beijing and brief them comprehensively on the MOX program, which I used to run at the Department of Energy, and the cost overruns, uh, that fuel fabrication facility is being built with Ariva technology based on Ariva uh, processes. And I th my guess is that the Chinese, who were undertaking this reprocessing for civil reasons, separate from their weapons program, would be so appalled by the prospect of what they're facing, especially when compared com um, also given the data on Rikasho, which now is over $25 billion and counting, is 25-year project. They've had 23 delays in that project. Reprocessing is economically indefensible. Right. So to the extent that the Chinese are pursuing as, as part of their civil program for fuel management or spent fuel management, they, don't, they shouldn't want any part of this. And we should just give them the facts to give them those reasons. Now, they're concerned, the Chinese are concerned about the Japanese stocks of separated plutonium. The Japanese have recently expressed concern about Chinese getting into massive reprocessing. And of course, we've heard from, from the Koreans. 
they would all be better off if there was, I don't know that there can be a joint decision, but if there were three separate but coordinated decisions to forego this technology, their security and prosperity would be advanced. I'm gonna let Senator Cardin, I know he's got uh, an incredible day in front of him to go ahead and ask his questions and make any comments. And again, thank you both. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I really do uh, enjoy the conversation that's taking place. And it, it just leads to the, the comment I'm gonna make and, and try to get your input as to what is the best structure for us to try to promote in order to deal with these nuclear issues. We, we do have tools. I mean, we do have the United Nations and the IAEA and the protocols and the potential for Security Council sanctions against those who violate the, those protocols. We, we do have uh, treaties uh, that, that have um, moved us in, in this direction. And we, we have the one, two, three agreements um, that we've already been talking about. So there, and we have our bilateral relations. There's a lot, there's, and we have now the National Security Summit. So we have these vehicles, but I, I just want you to, let's get out of the weeds a little bit and talk about what would be the most effective type of protocol for the United States to try to promote globally to get a, a better uh, global uh, consistency. You talk about reprocessing and knowledge on reprocessing. It's, a, it's an excellent point. Uh, there are, we talk about on uh, civil nuclear, uh, the need, there's no need for, uh, for the refinement. We, there's ways you can get your, your um, nuclear materials. There's different ways that this can be handled so that a gold standard really is a gold standard. And I agree with you, uh, Secretary Toucher. The gold standards have not been what the gold, they're mischaracterized. So we really could, I think, develop international gold standards and not get into just the lowest common denominator that if we don't do this, it'll go to a French company or a Russian company so that we could really develop, I would think, sensible global standards on the use of nuclear materials for both civil and military use. So well, how, how do we get there? Um, well, this has obviously been an issue that we've been struggling with for a very long time. Um, the U.S. has decided against reprocessing for um, back, I guess, certainly during the Carter administration, um, and it's been largely reaffirmed since then. I think it actually is, it's hard to address that in a comprehensive way. I think it's something you have to do in an either ad hoc fashion, fashion nation by nation, or perhaps with groups of nations in the, the Northeast Asia example. Um, each of these countries is pursuing this technology for their own reasons, um, and those reasons always vary a little bit, and so it's hard to, to come up with a, a comprehensive plan. The challenge, and I, that's what we've been doing. The challenge is you run into countries, and, and I'll, I'll mention again, Pakistan, that has an internal need. They have a, a, a security, as they perceive a security need, and then they have a regional aspect where they can try to become more influential in the region by the use of their uh, nuclear proliferation issues. Uh, we're trying to work, we limit our attentions to Pakistan on a, bi on a bilateral basis, I'm not sure we'll ever get to the results we need to. Maybe we will, I don't know, but uh, it's a very complicated relationship. 
And it's multifaceted in that it's not just about their nuclear uh, ambitions. Uh, Senator, I, th I think you're exactly right. It, it's hard to deal with them individually, but it does illustrate, so obviously India and China are relevant to those calcul that calculus as well. But it also does illustrate the point I was trying to make in that, at least in my view, uh, Pakistan's motivations are almost entirely security related. They're not talking about their spent fuel management, they're building nuclear weapons for their defense. Whereas the uh, China, Japan, South Korea case has a security dimension to it, but at least in what they state is driven by civil nuclear programs and spent fuel management. And so that's why I would argue you have to approach the problems differently, but I would agree that you probably need to deal with groups of nations, small groups. You know, I think Will's absolutely right, Senator, I, and I think you've alluded to this. This is about a regional approach. This is about Asia. This is about the five or six countries that we've talked about, India, Pakistan, China, Japan, and the Koreas. And there, there is this thread of, of security. That's why it's important to have all of them participate in the Nuclear Security Summit, and they've been very active. There's also this issue of their civil nuclear programs, um, and obviously their weapons programs. But I think that it, it's going to take United States leadership to basically try to understand how to deal with the cross-currents of those tumultuous, this tumultuous area. And in both cases, we've got countries, India and Pakistan, and, and the two Koreas that are at odds with each other constantly. The fact that they all, you know, that they have nuclear weapons, the Republic of Korea doesn't, the North Koreans do, uh, only heightens the, the incidence of concern. Um, so I think it's really about putting together, you know, it would be wonderful to have this committee put together uh, an effort to talk about creating some kind of summit in that, in that region uh, and put together some simple principles where you started to work to get people to understand the dangers of reprocessing, uh, why reprocessing in, in a world where there are, is fuel banking isn't perhaps necessary in the next few years. Uh, making sure that those funding if efforts on fuel banking solve their civil nuclear issues. Deal with the security pieces over here in a security kind of way. Not necessarily in the security, um, nuclear security summit, which is really anti-terrorism. But specific to the kinds of uh, efforts that, these, that many of these countries have of antagonism and try to find a way to take down the tensions. I think that would be an enormous effort helpful. for national security. That's helpful. I want to get to the issue of enrichment for one moment and whether uh, I, I can envision that we're going to be approached by a Gulf state saying, look, we, we think we need a, a civil nuclear program. And because of our region, it's important that we have the ability to enrich internally. Uh, what? can the U.S. position be on a country that wants to enrich uh, when it seems to many of us the fewer places you have enrichment, the safer this world's going to be? My own view is that we should try and discourage the spread of enrichment and reprocessing programs wherever they occur. And, you know, Northeast Asia is a great example of it. If China moves ahead, uh, there are going to be pressures on South Korea to have reprocessing. They've argued openly, well, you allow Japan to do it, so why can't we? If South Korea gets reprocessing, then it's inconceivable that we could have an agreement as unlikely as it may be 
that North Korea would ever give up their reprocessing. And that would, you know, that, so that puzzle just never gets solved unless you begin to move in the other direction. We, we attempted at one time, and the chairman was active on this, to look at one, two, three agreements and say, look, uh, you want, I understand there's world technology, we're the best. And if you really are committed to the most efficient civil nuclear program uh, and want the most advantageous relationship with the United States, then our standard is that you don't need to have an enrichment program. And we, whatever we agree to, we'd like to be enforceable, by the way. Uh, could that work, could, or is it too far down the road? So as I left as undersecretary, I actually wrote a memo about this. Because, you know, I spent 15 years on Wall Street as a small child, so I'm kind of somebody that looks at mm -hmm. negotiations as, you know, how do you make two sides whole, how do you have a deal that sustains itself, and how do you move forward? What, I, what concerns me is that our one, two, three agreements are used to do two things. One is, one is to have this hammer and say, don't enrich, and the other is to say, buy America. The problem is, we should have two separate agreements. One is this non-proliferation agreement that is really a diplomatic agreement where we're putting together our best advice on how to eliminate the proliferation risks, especially regionally, and, and to try to get as many countries to sign up to this as possible. And I think that's a huge diplomatic effort that we could do. The second is more of a DOE commercial agreement on whether we're going to sell technology or not. And so I think that one of the reasons why one, two, three agreements have had a checkered past and very, very little success recently is because we're trying to get these enrichment decisions made on a commercial agreement. Mm. I would separate them. And I don't know if you're going to have success on the commercial agreements anymore, but I would surely spend a lot of time on these anti-enrichment pieces. And if we put that effort together and the State Department r would run it, I think they would do a terrific job. That's, a very, that's an excellent point because uh, the way that the, these agreements are being lobbied on Capitol Hill very much underscore the point that you're raising. Yeah, I'll just follow up. I, I think that is a great point. It's, 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 I would say in the audience today taking notes, we have people from the nuclear industry, that would be my guess. Um, and the fact is, uh, I, I couldn't be more supportive of our nuclear industry. I want them to do well, and I want our country to be leading in technology, and yet we find ourselves uh, sort of at loggerheads encountering our nuclear industry folks over these agreements, which really it isn't about them. Um, we want them to be doing the business, but it's about, uh, you know, the fact that we don't want to see proliferation taking place. So I think that's an excellent point. I don't know if it's doable, but uh, to really try to separate those so we end up being aligned with our commercial interest here in nuclear technology and wanting us to be the best and the most dynamic in the world uh, and at the same time trying to negotiate on a different track. That's interesting um, and it's something we're certainly going to take away from this. You know, I, I will say you talked about Asia and the fact that we're allowing enrichment to take place and again, not to beat a dead horse, but, you know, we've done the same with Iran, where, in essence, we're allowing them to enrich, which 
was my greatest, uh, you know, one of the greatest problems I had with the deal we reached and allowing them to develop technology to enrich even faster during the, the lifetime of this agreement. And so we are going to have those pressures. Uh, you know, other countries are going to be coming in, no question. I mean, there's no commercial need whatsoever for Iran to be doing this. It makes absolutely no sense, and everyone understands that. I mean, uh, third grade students could understand that. And so, you know, it's self-evident that this is being done for a particular purpose. So let me step back away from enrichment. And, and as you look at the world today, and you go out and you try to keep um, nuclear arsenals from proliferating as they are at rapid pace today, what is it you can really say to a country that has the know-how and understands the, the threats that exist in the world and understand what a deterrence it is to have a nuclear weapon? What is it you really can use, really, especially with what's happened over the last several years, to convince a country that feels threatened that it's not in their best interest to develop a nuclear weapon um, today. Seriously, I mean, give me your argument as a diplomat in this area. Um, I think one of the best arguments we have, Senator, is, is uh, you know, we have extended our deterrent to NATO allies and others um, between the United and, and States. And I should have said except for our our NATO allies. Obviously, there's an argument there, but I'm talking about people outside right. our umbrella. Okay. And, and what I'm suggesting, you know, is probably heretic, heretical, and I probably, my phone's going to buzz off the hook this afternoon, but, you know, to the extent, look, we pretty much have identified who we think tripwires to getting their own nuclear arsenal if they can, uh, if conditions in their region or it can, if something happens where they consider themselves to be uh, in ultimate danger and they feel like they need a nuclear deterrent to kind of keep people back. I would suggest that we consider, because we have not, you know, a huge arsenal, um, that we would find ways to deal regionally with deterrence. And we would say that we could expand the countries that we actually offer the nuclear umbrella to, to prevent other countries from coming in with their own arsenals. Um, I don't think we can do that for the world. I don't think we can do that far afield from us, but there certainly are places, including in the Middle East, where it may make some sense because of the volatility of that area where we said, don't do it on your own. For these kinds of conditions, we will back you up. You know, I think, I think that the, the nuclear arsenal that we have is safe, reliable, and one that people can find confidence in. I don't believe that any other country should become a nuclear weapons state. I think we are un unfortunately in such a turbulent time that that worries me more than anyone else, that people feel that this is the thing. As you said, there are plenty of bad guys, including the dictator in North Korea, that have watched what's happened over 20 years and have said, well, I don't feel like feeding my people. I don't feel like being a good, a good leader. Um, I, I want to preserve my regime. So if I have nuclear weapons, no matter how bad I am, I'm safer right. than anybody else. And that is the wrong indication that we should be letting people believe. 
So I think that it's going to take a lot of smart minds, including yours, to sit down and understand this. That's one of the reasons why I hope that, that the new administration will do a nuclear posture review, because I think these kinds of strategic questions need to be answered, not only about the use and, and, the, and the construct of the complex investment strategy, but also how are we going to use the existing arsenal to prevent other countries, especially allies, from getting in the nuclear weapons business? Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point, and I'll go back to the point you made in your opening statement. I, I think for us to be able to stress a deterrent uh, for others, they've got to see us actually taking seriously uh, us keeping up uh, and investing uh, in our deterrent in an appropriate way. They're not seeing that either. They see us here uh, really not dealing with our fiscal issues in general. They understand over time the pressures that that places on these kinds of things. But I think that's a very good point, Mr. Toby. Mr. Chairman, I, I agree completely with the, the importance of extended deterrence and therefore one of the many reasons why it's important to modernize our capabilities. I would also add a point about the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's really a bundle of bargains, and there's one bargain that people always talk about, but there were two others, one that's probably less relevant now. The first bargain was between the United States and the Soviet Union, not to extend the competition of the Cold War to other states. The second one is the one that always gets talked about, which was between nuclear weapons states and non-nuclear weapons states to allow them to, so that uh, the nuclear weapons states agreed to engage in disarmament and to spread technology. Um, but the third bargain really was among non-nuclear weapons states because they, they were the ones who benefit the most. The states that are most threatened by an Iranian nuclear weapons program are not really the United States. They're the neighbors of Iran. And so for states to understand and act in a way that they understand that a nuclear weapons competition will leave them poorer and less secure is, is the ultimate persuasive goal. Now, that doesn't work in every case. I mean, obviously, in Southwest Asia and Northeast Asia, it's not working. But it has worked in lots of other places, Africa and South America. And so the goal is to, I think, try and spread that message. Yeah, and I think, you know, the competing issue with the Iran situation was they weren't immediately concerned about the nuclear capabilities, but they were immediately concerned about the 100 to $150 billion that was going to come into their hands and cause them to wreak more havoc uh, on a conventional basis uh, today. But, uh, but look, this testimony has been outstanding. I thank you both for being here. Um, if, uh, if agreeable to you, we're going to leave the record open until the close of business Friday, and if y'all could respond, I'm sure there'll be numbers of questions from members. Uh, we appreciate both of you taking the time and preparing for this, and uh, certainly your contribution has been large in this second panel. So thank you, and we look forward to seeing you again. It's an honor to appear. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Thank you so much. And with that, you, uh, the Foreign Relations Committee is adjourned. Thank you.